Hello, and welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin Smith and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is December 9th, 2022. A happy holidays to all of our listeners out there. We're going to be talking about innovation versus access, leadership turnover at a generics trade group, and the FDA's IND regulations this week. First up is a curious and surprising exchange that a Regeneron executive got into during a panel discussion at the Milk and Future of Health conference. Sarah, you saw this unfold. Uh, what happened? Yeah, so um, the president, um, George Yanapopoulos, I'm just going to, I probably just butchered his name, was on a panel. It was like kind of a, a wide range of like healthcare um, industry leaders. Um, that I think was designed to kind of talk about um, kind of leading through the past couple of years with COVID and everything else. Um, and he was sort of asked, you know, a question um, from the moderator, CNBC's Bertha Coombs, kind of about like, how will our system handle a sort of, she called it a Savaldi moment, if, you know, most people I think who listen to us kind of remember when the Gileads, you know, Hep C treatment came on the market and it was a pretty big scientific advancement for the disease. But then there was all this panic over the price just because um, there was a lot of pent up demand for, you know, a good hepatitis C treatment in this large population. So um, even a drug sort of price fairly reasonably would have been, you know, a huge added burden to the health system. Um, and she was talking about more like something for Alzheimer's where it might be even more expensive if it, there was a cure and potentially even, you know, much larger population of U.S. patients. And he got, um, I think, you know, it's hard to sort of tell exactly where she meant to kind of turn it over the floor over to him, but he sort of seemed to cut her off in answering the question and got kind of very aggressive and, you know, said, you know, you, you just don't you sort of need to have this conversation about payment now. Um, because we're so far off from having a cure from Alzheimer's and you really just need to, at this point, be focusing on the innovation side. Um, you know, he went so far as to like call her point about, you know, needing to think about, okay, how does the system deal with such a treatment once it's there? Ludicrous. And he, you know, he got um, booed by the audience, which I think is sort of an unusual thing to happen in this sort of, you know, very kind of like professional you know, corporate, academic, you know, suited up sort of environment. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, he just sort of was suggesting that, you know, dealing, thinking about access and equity is, you know, secondary. And we just need to make sure we have the incentives for innovation and that innovation is happening, I think. And he also seemed to imply at different points, you know, that, you know, we don't invest enough even in the U.S. in innovation and in the NIH and that, you know, we need to be thinking more about whether we're still, you know, have the financial incentives for innovation. I don't know whether that was some a potential allusion to like the IRA and everything else that's happened with drug pricing in the U.S. in recent months or not. Um, but, you know, I think like some of his underlying points are things that perhaps you you might hear other people in industry say i mean you know like you made one comment you know about well like it doesn't really matter you know if 
we have a system where you could give something away for free for everybody if you don't have the treatment, right? Like, so, I mean, he, he does have like a, a reasonable point, which is like, you know, first, you know, we need to deal with the science and figuring out the biology and finding these treatments. And on the other hand, like we sort of know, again, because we have Salvaldi, because we've had many other drugs. I mean, even if you think about like what CMS was thinking about in terms of Aduhelm and how they, um, I think before we sort of, before they sort of realized maybe it wasn't going to be as good of a drug as people wanted it to be, or there wasn't going to be as broad coverage, they were already adjusting Medicare, you know, premium payments because of it. And so, you know, it's not as theoretical as he wants to maybe believe in terms of the U.S. having to think about, you know, how to create different payment models and reimbursement models and how to price products in a way that, like, once you have treatments, more than just a handful of people or just, you know, people who are somehow independently wealthier have the best, you know, insurance can afford it. So, you know, I think like he just a part of I think where the audience reaction came from is he didn't really address the topic as diplomatically or, you know, as you might see other people do when they argue about it. And like in contrast, um, there was the um, a leader from the United Way, um, Angela Williams on the panel, who, you know, kind of more calmly and perhaps a little bit more, um, you know, eloquently and in more control, you know, sort of pushed back a bit and, you know, made the point that, you know, there is, you know, health does not exist without actually giving people access to these treatments. Um, so it was it was kind of like a unique um, moment, like I said, in some ways, not because of the point he made, which I think other people in industry might agree with to varying degrees, but I think more just because of like how it came off. And, you know, maybe even like how dismissive he was of, you know, the CNBC um, reporter or other um, members of the panel in the conversation. Yeah, it's hard to uh, know how much to read into uh, the whole thing. Was it that they, uh, um, you know, maybe he uh, um, uh, needed his coffee or, uh, um, <laughs> you know, they, they, the, the uh, uh, Conference just scheduled the break differently or something. Sort of so the the audience and he were not sort of kind of in a uh, in a in a uh, in a testing mood to begin with. But uh, um, you know, in attempting to kind of read into this, oh, you know, industry feels they're sort of kind of uh, under assault now. They uh, you know they they saved the world from COVID nineteen and yet they uh, they're still saddled with this uh, um, onerous uh, you know drug pricing uh, provision now in the uh, in the U S. and they're uh, they're lashing out. I don't know if, uh, um, you know, that's a fair characterization of sort of, you know, I think, uh, you know, were we to uh, um, to do some uh, pop psychology, we might uh, um, might come to that uh, conclusion. But uh, you're absolutely right, Sarah, that's sort of kind of, you know, in the John uh, uh, Castellani era at uh, Pharma, sort of kind of, you know, how to pay for an Alzheimer's cure was one of his uh, favorite talking points, is that we need a system that sort of kind of makes, uh, make sure we do that. And, and, and now we sort of kind of, uh, seem to evolve into a point where we're kind of, uh, you know, leaders of uh, um, pharma companies are saying that, the, you know, we shouldn't, uh, um, we shouldn't talk about that. And it's uh, um, a uh, um, kind of an interesting space we find ourselves in as we have sort of more and more of these examples, as you're saying, that's kind of, there needs to be, uh, you know, some, uh, um, some, you know, serious sober discussion about sort of kind of having a uh, system that sort of both, uh, you know, incentivizes uh, the, you um, the innovation and the, you know all the uh, 
expensive uh, R&D that sort of goes into, uh, you know, making the um, therapeutic advances possible, but also uh, makes sure that, sure that they are uh, um, as widely used as possible once they actually uh, reach the market. So, you know, I, I agree with everything Matt just said. What I want to know is how do you communicate that to, for you know, example, an audience like the one that Sarah was just describing that it didn't, you know, the way it was, the way it was said didn't, you know, just basically fell flat. By the way, you never get booed at these conferences that like <laughs> I've been to dozens of them. Sarah's been to dozens of them. That doesn't happen. If you get applause, like that's like, you know, that's pretty much the extent of it. But because I mean, the reason I asked that question is because I mean, he I mean, the the point is legitimate. I mean, you 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 can't just expect something like a cure for Alzheimer's if we're that's what we're talking about to just magically appear and then be given away. I mean, you you can't you can't do that. I mean, it you you would never get the it would never be developed in the first place because the cost of development is so high that you just you know you just couldn't you couldn't fund it unless you know i mean i don't even know how you could do it even if you said from the beginning i'm going to give it away when it works um but you know like you were saying Matt, we we need to figure out a way to kind of communicate this in a way that people who get mad you know who are concerned about access can understand in and kind of you know i don't want to say get on board but at least you know be okay with the fact that you know yes we're doing this and at the end of the day it's going to cost money we're going to charge money for this when we get approval and it works yeah i, I mean i think like one thing like thinking back on it now is like um you know he was almost like came off very def defensive and i'm not even sure that was the the intent of the question or the topic you know I, that the um humana ceo was on the panel and talked a little bit about you know you know a concept that's come up a lot over the years is like is there a way to you know pay for things over a longer period of time um you know that like mortgage mortgage concept sometimes people talk about it and so i think like he took it as a very like he took the question as a very clear attack on like industry's pricing practices or the drug industry's pricing practices right and like some maybe almost it seemed like maybe as a clear kind of statement of like things are priced too high when perhaps maybe that wasn't necessarily even the intent the intent was just to think about okay like if treatments cost this much in our current you know u.s system of health insurance of you know, sort of distribution of, you know, wealth and, very, you know, people's various, you know, socioeconomic kind of statuses and how much, you know, like, how do we, like, ensure, you know, everybody who needs it sort of health-wise can access these treatments. And I, maybe, and that was sort of part of the, um, what happened here is, like, it became, for whatever reason, you know, became a, t a situation where, there was sort of some perceived he felt like seemed like to feel like he was being attacked or like the industry and it's the way it's pricing is being attacked and i'm not even necessarily sure if that was the like intent because again i'm not really sure she was you know downplaying the need at all for you know innovation and you know for these treatments to be developed i mean one thing that really didn't come up 
on the panel, but that I sometimes think about too, is I guess like sometimes in the industry argument, there's like an assumption that there's like sort of only one, I guess, model from the industry perspective, right, of how you finance and bring these therapeutics to market. And I guess the other question is like, what, is there another way to do that that would then shift the cost or shift the pricing of them? the products in a different way than thinking about like how to deal with it on the back end of, okay, this was the model that developed this treatment and this is the price that needs to be put on the product because of that model. Is there another way to get there so that instead of figuring out like, okay, how do we pay for therapeutics price this high? Could we develop them at a lower cost somehow? Yeah, that's a great uh, point, Sarah. I mean, you've seen over the uh, um, the years, you know, sort of a lot of the, uh, um, uh, reform efforts at FDA have been to try and sort of kind of you know streamline uh, clinical trials and uh, product development to uh, to save industry money in a way that uh, um, could you know could perhaps reduce the uh, um, the R and D spend and uh, you know sort of not create this sort of uh, intense pressure on uh, um, uh, you know sales once uh, you know one thing gets to the uh, um, gets to the market and uh, as you've been saying as you've talked about the mortgage uh, you know the um, through the uh, mortgage model, you know, the Savaldi moment that we uh, had with Savaldi was, uh, um, you know, something that led to sort of this whole Netflix model that a lot of states are pursuing in terms of sort of, kind of how they, uh, um, you know, so they, they, they guarantee an amount of uh, um, revenue to uh, um, uh, to sponsors and sort of then sort of pretty much, uh, you know, anyone in the um, in the state can, uh, under the state Medicaid programs can, uh, um, can use the product. So, uh, um, you know, I think there's a, uh, um, there's a lot of room for sort of kind of innovation on uh, on that side of the ledger as well as you as you noted. But with Savaldi too, you also had a bunch of other Hep C treatments that were on the way that just didn't get in first, right? So you had you had a lot of competition coming on the back end. I don't know if in Alzheimer's you you might you might see that too, but I don't I don't know that might it might be a different situation if you know you find the cure for Alzheimer's and it's you know, it's a unicorn out there for a long time until it goes generic. Yeah, I mean, hepatitis yeah, C is sometimes often brought up as like, I think the industry likes to point to it, like, look, we actually got competition and the price lowered there pretty fast. So they like to point at that as a, as a sort of a situation where it wasn't as bad as people thought it might be or where there was some leverage in the market to bring down prices. But I sometimes that seems like more of the exception than the rule. The other thing I think, if you think about Savaldi compared to some other products um, we're de- we deal with in the U.S. health system, you know, in some ways, Savaldi seems like a bit of a bargain. <laughs> I mean, it's something you take for a pretty short time and you get your, you know, kind of return. And in theory, people don't really need treatment versus, you know, we. I, I mean, again, we're sort of talking hypotheticals, but, you know, is the treatment that's going to develop for Alzheimer's going to be something that's like a one-stop cure? Is it going to be something somebody needs to take for the rest of their life? And, you know, um, so dealing with things where people are going to need them longer term, you know, has been more challenging than something like for a a shorter term virus. (laughs) So there's all these, you know, dynamics. Obviously, now we're seeing like these high priced gene therapies. And the idea, again, is that, you know, you're offsetting potentially all these years of care just at one time. And we don't have these payment models to deal with it, which I think um, 
some people would talk about in, in terms of Alzheimer's now, you know, while we don't have like cures or even really much in the way of treatment, we still spend a lot of money, the medical system on helping those people, right, live um, right now in care so that a, a drug may sort of offset some of those costs. And I think even in the, like the conversation, I think, you know, that would, would have been something he could have brought up. And instead, he seemed to sort of suggest like, oh, well, we don't ha we don't have anything for these people now. We're not doing anything in, in, to a certain extent, which I thought was, um, it, again, it just kind of, I think maybe some of the like defensiveness sort of played out in a way where some of like the more, you know, the better arguments for industry kind of got lost in that. Yes, as someone who has uh, uh, often uh, uh, has trouble uh, uh, keeping their cool, it's a it's a good reminder that sort of kind of you uh, you make your you make your point a lot better if you're uh, um, you know sort of uh, um, clear and modulated as opposed to sort of kind of uh, you know uh, um, animated and aggressive sometimes. Uh, yes, definitely true. So maybe yeah, maybe this is an example of how not to argue in favor of unbridled innovation and and. Uh, and so forth but we'll see what happens maybe you know it's a learning it's if anything it's a a learning moment for a for a bunch of us so next up we're going to discuss more churn in the drug industry's trade associations dan leonard who had been ceo of the association for accessible medicines a generics trade association abruptly announced his resignation earlier this week no reason for his departure was given, and David Goff, Executive VP of Sciences and Regulatory Affairs, was named the interim CEO. AEM in particular has had several leaders in recent years. Four people have run the organization, uh, two permanent CEOs and two interim CEOs, since February of 2020. This also comes shortly after the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, uh, their CEO, Michelle McMurray-Heath, left after a short tenure. Matt, I'm curious where you see AAM going from here and what you think the next generation of leaders of these pharma industry trade groups may potentially look like. Uh, thanks, Derek. It's, uh, um, you know, hard to say, uh, um, you know, as you noted, uh, um, uh, you know, bio was, uh, um, you know, for uh, for a long time, kind of the model of uh, trade group stability. And now uh, all of a sudden they're uh, um, kind of uh, having to do some soul searching about what they um, what they want. And, uh, AAM, uh, you know, sort of during that uh, uh, period where, where, where Bio had uh, um, so few different leaders, uh, um, AAM had so many, and so uh, you know, perhaps the uh, um, the wheel will wheel, the wheel will, will turn, and sort of kind of AAM will uh, you know become the uh, um, the one with a long term head, and uh, sort of Bio will sort of kind of walk in the wilderness for uh, um, for a bit. Your story, which uh, um, I encourage everyone to read, has a, has a great uh, a little timeline of the. Uh, um, Association uh, uh, heads for uh, AAM uh, uh, Bio and uh, Pharma that people can uh, um, can check out. So uh, it's hard to say. Uh, you know, like uh, um, like Bio AAM has a um, you know a disparate uh, um, you know membership. Uh, you know, they have uh, um, you know some members that are uh, you know large brand uh, um, uh, companies in their own right, and uh, you know some that are uh, um, you know merely focused on. Uh, um, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, supplying manufacturing components, uh, um, uh, if you will. And uh, um, so it's, uh, um, you know, it's kind of hard to get them in the, uh, um, 
you know, in the same room on the same page about uh, a lot of uh, uh, policy issues. But uh, um, obviously, uh, um, the association needs to do that because if you think about uh, um, the uh, the challenges that the brand uh, uh, industry will face with the uh, um, Inflation Reduction Act and sort of kind of the uh, um, the price negotiations negotiations uh, on uh, um, brand drugs around that sort of kind of it. Uh, um, uh, it that'll sort of kind of uh, um, roll down to uh, generic firms as uh, as well because there's going to be uh, less of a, a need uh, one could argue for the uh, generics and biosimilars that sort of kind of the uh, the highest priced and uh, uh, most widely used drugs are now uh, 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 have their spending capped in uh, in Medicare. There's going to be uh, um, uh, less an opportunities or kind of less of a, a business case for uh, you know generics for uh, um, for those uh, um, for those products and I think that's uh, um, uh, you know sort of a worry for industry going forward and sort of kind of whether they can find a leader that sort of kind of uh, you know helps uh, um, helps them navigate that new Washington landscape uh, you know will sort of go a long way to uh, to seeing sort of kind of how uh, um, how sustainable the industry can uh, can be in this new environment. Yeah, it was the you know, the kind of the first thing that popped into everybody's mind when when, you know, these when these CEOs, you know, were were leaving was the Inflation Reduction Act. And, you know, because uh, um, industry was was not in did not like the uh, the price negotiation provisions and the thinking was they might be able to get rid of them through their lobbying efforts and and they failed. And, you know, you wonder you know, we again, we don't know why, frankly, either of these people left. Um, but you want, you know, you wonder if it the timing is kind of convenient to, you know, reset your lobbying strategy, so to speak. I mean, you know, not only do you have to worry about implementation of this now, which is already there are, you know, there's already been talk of kind of tinkering with that. Um, you know, you, you have control of the House of Representatives turning over to Republicans. You have Senate committee chairs changing hands. So the time may mind out working out, you know, reasonably well for, you know, those kinds of changes. If you're, you know, you're trying to kind of, you know, turn the page, so to speak. One thing I'm kind of curious about is, you know, both Dan Leonard and then Chip Davis sort of came from more what I would branded drug industry roles, I guess, right? Chip Davis came over from pharma and um, Dan was leading um, the National Pharmaceutical Council, which I feel like is more aligned with, you know, um, brand industry sort of policy issues. And so um, it'd be interesting for me to see like where AAM goes and getting their next leader, because I don't know, it just always struck me as like, I mean, I can sort of see why they sort of would have the skill sets to run an organization like AM, but it's kind of interesting to me, like, how convincing are you as like sort of a the chief lobbyist of an organization um, going out and advocating for certain issues in your um, field when you're like you literally just came from sort of um, to some extent advocating for issues on the other side? I don't know. I just like find that like kind of interesting. Again, like I sort of understand when you're some of the like other job qualities they would have had would have made a lot of sense and tra- translate over right and and also I, I was looking back at um 
Dan's resume this morning, you know, he also worked in the insurance industry, which again, like, it's like a, sometimes a little bit weird to see people go from the insurance industry to pharma to um, bio and think about how that, again, plays out in terms of how effective you are in terms of lobbying. But um, so I don't know, that'll be, to me, that's something sort of interesting to see in terms of like, what kind of background and, you know, resume they're going to look for in their next leader. Yeah, it's kind of like the the uh, the sports analogy. I guess there's a couple of them that I that I think of when you when you talk when you mention that Sarah is you you never want to be the coach that follows like the super legend coach because <laughs> you'll never live up to that standard and you'll be you know the fans will never accept you because you replaced you know the legend who was there forever. You also you know there's also a theory that. Some programs want to hire, like, you know, uh, the the one I think of is Michigan wants to hire a Michigan man, you know, in quotes, you know, because they've been through the program, they understand where the, you know, how the the people want the program to be run and, you know, so forth. So you wonder if maybe, you know, these groups want, like you said, somebody with a generics background or somebody with a pharma background and not necessarily just, you know, somebody who, you know, is a, you know, kind of an up and coming leader, you know, um, you know, in a, you know, that has been working in a different industry. The other thing um, I was curious, Derek, I don't know if it's come up at all, like in your reporting, but, um, you know, maybe sometimes we think about like the generic industry as sort of the opposite or, you know, maybe sometimes in kind of like competition or contention with the branded industry. But another thing that's like been a big dynamic in the recent years is sort of like these newer sort of organizations or businesses that have propped up to like get people access to generic medicines like outside of their traditional pharmacy, you know, healthcare benefits. Um, that are cheaper. Like I was thinking in particular about Mark Cuban's Cost Plus Drugs, which announced like a they're trying to expand more into like the um, coverage with like employer insurance marketplaces. But I do kind of wonder like if any of like the dynamics of like how AIM has been able to like respond to those kinds of businesses in terms of pricing of generics and um, how that's like shaken up the market impacted at all, like his time at leadership or how he was viewed and so forth. Yeah, it's certainly uh, um, a big uh, um, uh, challenge for them. I think I uh, uh, stepped on uh, Derek's point, but I'll let him. I'll, I'll let I'll let you uh, I'll let you finish, uh, Derek. But uh, um, you know, they they had uh, um, uh, folks from uh, you know Cost Plus uh, um, or AAM had folks from Cost Plus at their annual meeting in uh, in February, and they're uh, they're very intrigued, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, by it. I mean, they are uh, um, uh, often. Uh, um, Complaining about sort of kind of how they they have so few outlets for their um, for their products. Sort of kind of when there are uh, you know the with wholesaler consolidation and sort of kind of uh, um, and and such. There's sort of kind of less uh, uh, less opportunities for kind of to uh, um, to get your product sold if you don't sort of, kind of win that uh, key contract. So they think uh, you know while uh, market disruption is uh, um, you know it's sort of kind of always unsettling. It's sort of kind of you know could present a lot of opportunities for uh, generic firms to uh, to find uh, new venues to to sell their stuff. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, Sarah. I mean, if they if the if the industry considers Mark Cuban's company to be 
you know, the equivalent of another wholesaler, then they'll probably be thrilled because, like Matt said, the the consolidation of down to, I think it's three wholesalers makes it like if you don't get one of those three, you might as well stop making the drug because you're not going to there's almost no market left. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but I thought for some reason and maybe I'm misremembering some of this. I thought Mark Cuban's company was planning to make their own drugs. They absolutely are. Yeah, they're uh, they're looking to, to compound it again for kind of uh, all the uh, um, all the rest of it. And so, uh, um, you know, they uh, they may end up as an AAM member. If they, uh, <laughs> they go that route. Who, who knows? But, uh, you know. but if it's a producer, I, if they're going to produce drugs, I'm not sure, you know, then, then they might start thinking about it differently. But if they if they if they, you know, maybe early on, they don't have the capacity to make everything that they need to make. Or that, you know, that they can feel like they can contract out some to, you know, to fill the orders that they need to fill or, you know, whatever, however the business is going to work, then, you know, they might have a different kind of kind of take on it because um, they where they could be kind of a part wholesaler and part producer at the same time. But, yeah, it, something like that will be really interesting to see, you know, especially if he can make it work. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that, you know, how that kind of if that disrupts the generic industry or even the brand industry for that matter. Finally, we're going to go back to Sarah. Um, you heard some interesting comments from the FDA's Office of New Drugs Director um, about problems with the IND process, which became apparent during the pandemic. Yeah, so um, at actually another um, Milken um, <laughs> panel uh, that Peter Stein was, you know, talking about, um, but the, the entire panel was on kind of drug repurposing um, and he was talking about in COVID how, you know, FDA, as we know, early on in particular, was kind of inundated with IND applications. And Janet Wilcock has sort of talked about how there was a very, like, fragmented system where, you know, there were too many studies of the same drug and some of a lot of the studies were empowered adequately. And, um, you know, we were sort of and to some extent kind of like wasting patients and resources, right? If you're not going to be able to do studies where you can actually get good data out of it. And something I thought that I hadn't really heard before, at least talked about in this way, was Peter Stein was sort of talking about saying that like scientifically, um, you know, he felt like the sort of rationale for the drugs that were repurposed, um, the drugs that sort of didn't pan out kind of, if you thought about it scientifically, probably didn't seem like they were likely to pan out right from day one. And the drugs that did end up, you know, getting approved and or I should probably say authorized and being useful were drugs that were scientifically more plausible. But the point he sort of raised was like FDA doesn't really have any um, authorities or sort of ability to kind of better direct resources to things that seem scientifically more plausible. You know, their IND authority is basically on just sort of making sure there's no like undue kind of safety risks to patients. Um, And it was kind of interesting because like he didn't then take the point like the next step further and suggest any kind of changes to FDA IND authority. In fact, he maybe he doesn't think that should even be the case because he's just sort of threw it out there as like something like, okay, we need a solution for this problem because again you don't want to have 300 trials of a drug like ivermectin that clearly is not you know is very unlikely to help um a disease because it's just not good for anybody um 
when there might be better alternatives out there. Um, so I'll be interested to see if anybody like picks up on this going forward, if there is like anything brewing at the FDA for them to kind of better, um, you know, find a lever to kind of better address this issue. Because it's certainly, like I said, though, like I think Stein framed it in sort of a different way or addressed a different part of the problem. I mean, we we know that, you know, this is something FDA and particularly Janet Woodcock has been frustrated for for a while, even pre-COVID, even outside of re drug repurposing. But again, I think they feel like they don't have any way to sort of control the situation so it's like how many times can you point out a problem and then watch nothing being done about it yeah it's yeah as i was reading that story you know i i was thinking kind of the same thing where you know the you know could you i mean if you wanted to change something like you know he doesn't want to he doesn't want a specific like regulatory reform but maybe i mean does he maybe want the fda to be a little more critical of the applications i mean i understand like you don't want to potentially like throw out the cure for cancer because like you know for lack of a better term a bureaucrat doesn't is skeptical that it it'll do anything but you know if, if like you said you're seeing 300 trials for ivermectin and we know ivermectin is not going to be effective against covid why do you want to keep being, why are you being forced to keep accepting INDs for something we know doesn't work? Yeah, I guess like, does the F, is the FDA empowered to say we've already got 300 INDs? We've they've already shown it doesn't work. Moot, try something else. You know, I guess that's my question. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I mean, I, I I feel like we spend so much time covering kind of like the further end of the spectrum, right? Like once drugs are further along and have completed, you know, their later phase study, what FDA is looking for in terms of approval. Um, and so I feel like, I, you know, after listening to him, I almost like want to take a deeper dive into like the regulations around INDs and how, what FDA can or cannot, you know, when FDA can or can't, you know, let them proceed. And, you know, he also mentioned, you know, there's plenty of situations too where like an IND might not even need or you know a, a certain studies of drugs can go on without you know necessarily needing FDA um, clearance for a variety of reasons so it did make me curious to think more about like well how do those you know what actually is in the regulation or law and you know what kind of tweaks could or couldn't be made if that was something FDA was thinking about. But yeah, it did make me feel a little bit like maybe like needing to kind of just like think a bit more about that side of things is usually I feel like a lot of our coverage kind of jumps in much later in the game. Yeah, we've, we've heard from uh, um, FDA that even in uh, traditional uh, um, drug development, their hands are somewhat tied. If uh, a sponsor wants to do something and it's uh, not unsafe, the FDA could discourage them and, you know, try to point out uh, that that endpoint is unlikely to lead to, uh, um, you know, approval or you're not going to get the kind of data you want to uh, be able to advance to the next uh, um, phase after that. And, uh, you know, sort of kind of guide them in a direction of, uh, you know, the kinds of uh, uh, data that they want for, uh, you know, to make a uh, a regulatory uh, yes stamp on uh, on the drug and actually get it onto the market, but uh, they can't uh, they can't say no unless there's a uh, um, 
an obvious uh, safety issue uh, there. And uh, that's even more true for products that are uh, already approved and on the market. There's kind of there's uh, um, you know there's there's uh, you know for the most part an IND exemption there. They can just kind of kind of kind of go uh, um, go forward um, as long as it's sort of kind of not. Uh, um, is obviously going to sort of put someone at uh, undue risk. So, uh, um, you know, uh, how does we're going to balance uh, uh, sort of the uh, the the spirit of uh, scientific exploration and sort of kind of uh, you know not uh, you know leaving stones unturned with this idea that sort of kind of we're uh, you know even uh, um, outside of a pandemic you're kind of wasting your effort as you're not sort of kind of listening to the FDA's advice about how to structure a trial uh, um, is is a real challenge I think for both agencies and uh, and sponsors that want to do their own thing and uh, Agencies that don't, uh, you know, want uh, folks to waste their time on uh, stuff that's not going to pan out. Yeah, and it's it's interesting too because the the and Matt, you just reminded me of this. The the expanded access regulations tend to work in the opposite direction because you're 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 wanting to you know you have a patient that's you know in really uh, you know critical condition. You want to try and kind of throw a hail mary and try something that you think might work, but you know we don't know it's ever been tested for this, and you know you're asking the FDA for permission to use it, and they can say no. And you know we've all had you know heard the, you know the 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 PR you know kind of problems that have that have come out of that when they have said no, and um, you know so you wonder why the traditional A and D process. You know, they, if if expanded access can work that way, why the traditional IND process doesn't, you know, kind of work in the same way? Well, I doubt uh, Congress and the agency will will tackle that this round, but that could be uh, another Padufa uh, Padufa issue if sort of uh, if uh, sponsors feel that's we're kind of holding them back from uh, bringing innovation uh, forward. Yeah, it could be an F- yeah, it's an FDA issue that they uh, that they negotiate into the into the PDUFA process the next time around. Something to note for the file, which I'm sure is already <laughs> being, the file is already being, uh, you know, is being filled populated with things that they want to do the next time already. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. If you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time. 